Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. My name is Michael Tynan, and I'd just like to take thank Jacob for the selection of chocolates which he has provided for our our tasting this evening. My name is Mark Bell and once again I am in awe of Michael's notes for this episode. Very good. Yes, well there's a lot of notes because we're heading back into a big topic, Rome. Uh, It's a big one guys, Uh, so we're, we're taking a few episodes to get through it. Now last time, if you're listening along, we talked about season one of the HBO show Rome and the corresponding history uh, ending at the death of Julius Caesar, which is the end of season one of Rome. Uh, Season two of Rome came out two years later, and I believe they originally planned to go for four or five seasons at least, and season two is very much uh, a lot of stuff happening at once, a lot of stuff that's condensed, so we're going to try to do the same thing and follow along with the history in a sort of condensed fashion. But I think the first question we need to ask going into season two uh, is who were these assassins who took out Julius Caesar? It's something we've not quite got into yet. So who yeah, were these guys? They stabbed him 23 times, Mark. Like, was there 23 of them? Well, well so the, the thing with the, with the assassins who uh, laterally refer to themselves as, with the grandiose title of liberators is that this whole thing is quite incestuous. We, we talked about it in the last episode about how sort of this would make a really good... Um, really good sort of uh, uh, drama, like a daytime drama drama on TV if it was set in modern times. And the reason I'm saying that is, while these are all political and military leaders, they're also all intermarried and related. Um, The leader of the assassins, the leaders of the assassins are names that everyone will sort of be familiar with from modern culture, and that's Brutus and Cassius. Um, well, Br- people know Brutus. I'm not sure people know Cassius. No? I think you might be in a bubble. Okay, time, maybe right? I'm in a bubble. Yeah, I could be in a bubble. <laughs> I <don't> know. <laughs> um, well, I think I think to be honest, most people know Brutus really more from Shakespeare. Yeah, than, uh, than all of this is else, right? more from Shakespeare. This is all I from think. Shakespeare. Yeah, um, and I think I think uh, sort of a, an important point to to make is that Brutus is, uh, according to some historians, and certainly according to rumors that existed at the time. Um, it's per- perhaps the bastard child of Julius Caesar himself. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Sounds like some dramatic <laughs> yeah, right? fiction shit. Yeah, this is what th- it really does, but there's there's reasonably good reason to believe it. Um, the show makes a, a good point of portraying Brutus's mother being in love with Caesar. Now, that is, that is true. Sevilla and, and Julius Caesar had been carrying on an ongoing affair their whole lives, really, from the age of about 15. But that's where the difficulty comes in. Brutus himself is born in 85 BC, so he's 15 years younger than Caesar. So, I mean, unless he fathered him at 15, which, look, he could have done. Did he um, You get your toga at what age again? That's when you become a man in Rome, I think. They gave around 15, they gave you your toga. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe, maybe it lines up. And certainly Caesar knew Servilia then. And Caesar had, like, he was in a rush to get a lot done. He was, saw, yeah. He was a busy so, man. Yeah. Um, Brutus, bit unlike Caesar in that respect. He was... Uh, from a, a, an extraordinarily important family. In the first episode on, the, on this uh, on this run about Rome, we mentioned the overthrow of the of the kings of Rome in, back in the midst of history. The leader of that was one of this guy's ancestors. He was also called Brutus. One of the major reasons why the conspirators who wanted to take Caesar out uh, 
approach Brutus was because they felt that having his name attached to the plot to kill Caesar would legitimize them. So they felt, well, Caesar is behaving like a king. So it's gonna it, it legitimizes our argument that he's behaving like a king if the Kingslayer takes him out, and Brutus is the Kingslayer. You know, um, so it's it's a sort of a it's a sort of a, a, a political move on their part, a propaganda move on their part. And but, of course, there's another in popular media, another connection to a very popular Kingslayer that we see in uh, Discworld, where Commander Vimes and his ancestors, of course, <laughs> slayed the last kings of Ankh Morpork. No, we're not talking about Game of Thrones anymore. Fuck Game of Thrones. Yeah. I really wasn't <laughs> expecting a Terry Pratchett I, I really didn't see No, but that is, I mean, I, I, I joke, but that's definitely uh, inspired by Brutus because Commander Vimes' ancestors took out the last king of Ankh Morpork. But anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sidetrack. <laughs> so Brutus Brutus is, is a favourite of Caesar's. Yeah. By virtue of the fact that he's Savilia's son, if not by virtue of the fact that he suspects he's his own son. But he is also um conspicuous in that his uncle is Cato, who we mentioned earlier, is like the definitive Stoic Roman. So Cato is Savilia's uh, half brother. Um and so Brutus's political career starts with him essentially serving as Cato's assistant. And that sort of places him among the optimates. So he's he's a conservative. He's in that sort of group of political figures. I don't know what optimates mean. Is that the guys in the Senate? They're the, the nobles. Show? They're the conservatives. They're they're the guys who, in modern day UK, for example, would be the Tories. Well, basically. yeah, and they're also the guys that Julius Caesar uh, kills slowly by one by one. Yes. So this yeah. is the side. This is the faction that follows in under Pompey. So when we talked about the civil yeah. war in the last episode, when the Senate flees Rome. Um, Brutus went with him so he, he left with him in, in 49 uh, BC after the battle then where, where Caesar defeats Pompey um, Brutus essentially writes a letter to Caesar and just said ah, look I had to go and I was with the other senators and I didn't really mean it and you know we're, we're really good mates and you know you've always been like a father to me can I please come back and Caesar just astonishingly is like yeah yeah that's fine I can't be mad at you Get back here, you young scamp! You know, yeah. so he basically lets him back to Rome. But it's 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 worse than that. It's not even just that he has him come back to Rome. Caesar actually appoints Brutus to be the governor of Gaul, so mm. he sends him up and gives him Gaul, which is just a ludicrous thing to do to somebody who who could be on your the enemy. Side. Yeah, 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 the opposite side of the civil war. But it just puts into perspective that Caesar actually trusted him, or as the or show portrays it, him, or, or as the sh- yeah, or as the show portrays it. it they they sort of make it out that he he's trying to get him out of Rome. Mm. Um, while Brutus comes back to Rome, the, and Caesar starts enacting all of his laws and his reforms, as we were talking about in the previous episode, and he starts as the as his assassins allege behaving like a king. The conspiracy slowly builds, and really, what's happening is it's conservatives who are jealous of Caesar. That's really what's what's happening. They're annoyed that he's able to whip up the mob. He's able to whip up enough support from the senators. He's able to have done all of this. He beat Pompey. You know, he's put himself in an unassailable position. And they can't really stomach it. But it's very difficult for them to legitimately take him out. So Brutus is key to their own theories of legitimacy around around actually trying to kill There was also a thought that at the time that if a man, any man, put himself above the welfare of the Republic, and even if he didn't declare himself a king, if he if he acted like a king, that he was fair game to be, uh, you know, assassinated. Yeah, it wasn't illegal. You know, it wasn't illegal. Yeah, it was it considered illegal. like a, a, a public virtue, if yeah. that makes sense, you know? But I think the, the key thing that the show does a good job of is, is it sort of shows you that, that importance in public life is sort of thrust upon 
Brutus. He's not necessarily somebody who wants this. He's actually quite comfortable, you know, as you would be, being a fabulously wealthy man from one of the most famous families of Rome, and you can just fucking do what you like. And also the guy who has all the ultimate power sort of loves you, like you're yeah. like you're his son or like you're his, his nephew. Um, it's said that when the the assassins do actually attack Caesar in, in, on the floor of the, uh, of the Senate when they start stabbing him, he was trying to fight them off. But once he saw that Brutus was among them, that sort of broke him. Because he, he just realised, there's, like, there's no getting out of this. Even the guy that I've shown, showered with praise and love and money and everything I can do, even he's trying to kill me. Well, I mean, we have a good idea of why the, quote, liberators would want Brutus on their side, but why do you think Brutus did this then if he was, you know, so showered with love and in a quite comfortable position and everything? He, basically, it, the, the pressure over time, the political pressure over time and the weight of his family name yeah. is weighing on him. So in the, in the first episode, we, we, we mentioned how Roman culture, a lot of it for the senatorial class is built on, you're trying to outdo your ancestors. It would have been claimed to Brutus that him not doing this would, have be, would be a betrayal of his ancestors mm. and that he'd never lived this down. If he allowed a dictator who he had ample opportunity to stop to take power in Rome while, while a Brutus lived, it would just be unacceptable for, there, in, in all time. There is, you know, it, it, there is mentions in the histories that there was graffiti even in Rome at that time on the walls saying like, where are you, Brutus? Question mark, you know? So when he'd be walking down to the forum, he'd see that. So I think in a way he was guilt tripped into into well, he, getting involved no in the conspiracy. There's no doubt about it. He was guilt tripped. He felt the pressure of the culture, but he also felt pressure from his brother-in-law, uh, who's Cassius Longinus, who's sort of one of the leaders of the of the assassins. He's he's also a, a, a fabulously wealthy senator who's got uh, he's got sort of short shrift in history. He's a, he's a fairly interesting character. He's an Epicurean philosopher and was in the army and all of this kind of stuff. And he was just incensed at the concept of a, of a, a guy who had, had himself declared dictator for life. They just they just couldn't stomach it. You know, the problem for the liberators is that they have misread the mood from the mob. Mm. They don't understand that actually the mob loves Caesar, and. Previously, the political divide is what we call the optimates and the populares. But at this point in history, Caesar is so popular that the populares, as a political entity, have been renamed the Caesarians. They're, that's how that's the level of popularity he's got. It can't be understated. The, I don't know what that means. But like, what? Why does it matter if they've been renamed the Caesarians? Well, he's so popular that they're now named after him. Oh, so that it's like, <laughs> so it's it, it's to a point where it's you're either optimates against Caesar or you're Caesar's group. There's no sort of middle ground. You can't be a, a sort of a socialist that doesn't really align with this party or doesn't. Really, there's two parties. You're with Caesar or against them, and that's it. And, and this is kind of shown in the fact that in the aftermath of the assassination, there was kind of it's 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 noted as well that there was stunned silence in the streets. Yeah. Like the liberators believed that you know they would have been greeted like as heroes walking through the street the streets and but instead like the population was just like you have to imagine they'd been years of civil war like they were just tired many of them had lost children in the wars uh they they were like oh so we had finally got a bit of stability i know it wasn't a republic but at least caesar had brought stability now and and all of a sudden he'd also brought money yeah, to the plebs uh, that's the thing that people forget you and know this is mean? it yeah and, and now everything's been upset again by this ass- assassination so they weren't the mob was not happy with the liberators you know they were also they were also sensationally ill prepared for the aftermath this is the this is the crazy what if of history because the, the, the assassins take out Caesar but they don't have a plan 
Yeah. They just think this is this will be fine. The Senate will just hold elections and we'll have another consul and it'll be grand and we won't need to worry about the dictator. But it's not fine. When when this happens, Mark Anthony flees the city because he's thinks to himself, Well, they've killed Caesar, they're definitely gonna whack me now. Yeah. But they didn't even try. Well, this is the thing, like they kind of like the the way Cicero actually at the time, Cicero was a pa- who was a, a politician at the time. He wasn't a part of the conspiracy, but he was very happy that it had happened, you know. And he actually had a quote, and it was, "The Ides of March was a, a, a fine deed, but it was only half done." Yeah. So basically, like just like Mark was saying, he was like, "Okay, so you've cut off the head of the beast, but like the rest of the body, the rest of the Caesarian faction, you didn't get rid of. You didn't get rid of Mark Antony. You didn't get rid of any of these uh, lead men. So what's going to happen?" the Caesarian faction or the populari, the mob, whatever you want to call it, are going to rally around Antony and we're just going to create another Caesar if we're not careful. So Cicero, for example, was extremely angry that uh, he, that it had been such an amateur operation. Yeah. You know what I mean? He considered it. He's like, you guys, you did a great thing, but you really fucked up the <laughs> aftermath, basically. And I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an important point to make because I think it illustrates the point that these men, these politicians, these optimates, the, the senatorial class, Brutus, Cassius, and these guys, they were so separated from the reality of what was happening in the city that they just assumed things would be fine and they didn't have to plan for anything. Yeah. Eventually, they, they, they actually, Anthony, who had fled the city, realizes, oh, they're not actually trying to kill me. These guys are a bit stupid. So he just came back to the city and he sort of negotiated uh, a sort of a settlement with them where he said, we, we won't declare you murderers or outlaws but you equally won't come after me. Mm. So this will be fine. And they allowed him to do that, but he was lying. They, yeah, like basically they showed a lack of ruthlessness. So the, the problem with a lot of these guys who were the liberators were they were like they were idealists. So they believed yeah. what they were doing was a great deed and that surely the rest of the population will notice this and laud us and all this. But the, the problem with it was that they didn't anticipate that to, they needed to be rootless to basically stamp out Caesar's supporters or else everything was going to turn on its head again. And that's exactly what happened, really, you know? Yeah, so a couple of mistakes in that they didn't do the full thing. They didn't do it properly. Yeah. Um, and they didn't read the mood of the city properly. They didn't know what people were going to react. Was there anything else that they uh, messed up? Or? So they, they agreed, Brutus and Antony agreed that they would together lead the funeral for Caesar which mm. if you just think about how ridiculous this is this is a guy who's killed him who's now going to be the lead of his funeral but for Brutus perspective he might be starting to realise oh, okay this guy's really really popular maybe I need to drill home the fact that I was one of his favourites and pe- remember me I'm, I'm practically his family and you know I, know I know I killed him but it's, it's because of this and whatever but Anthony uh, in uh, probably his most genius political masterstroke insists that he does the oration and this is the famous friends, Romans, countrymen, yeah. lend your ears. This is the famous speech. What Anthony does here is really, really profound. He essentially reads, or he brings up on the stage with him, essentially, Caesar's uh, will. And in Caesar's will, part of it, he leaves a lot of his wealth and power and money and whatever, gravitas, all that kind of stuff, to the people. And what Anthony does is he whips the crowd up into such a frenzy about the fact that Caesar has been murdered. He even has Caesar's toga, which mm. is covered in blood. And the men who killed him are just off to the side here. And he doesn't specifically say, these guys did this. But he says, these, these, remember these guys, these noble men here who killed your Caesar? And it gets to the point where the crowd are whipped up in, into such a fury that 
uh, Brutus, Cassius, and the rest. They actually have to leave the city. Is this the uh, Brutus was an honorable man? Yeah, line? yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, there you see. Anthony's thing is that he realizes what has happened. He, he realizes that the liberators are now going to paint Caesar as this horrible enemy and he's trying to make himself king. So, Anthony brings in some facts about what happened there. So, he has a line in the speech as, as Shakespeare has. He says, uh, You all that seated on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, but he thrice refused it. Mm. So, he's trying to say, Caesar wasn't wasn't a king. These people say he was too ambitious, but is it ambitious to turn down a crown? I don't think so. He was for you, not them. That's why they didn't like him. He wasn't an optimist. That's why they didn't like him. He was a popularity. He's Caesar. You know, he's your Caesar. They have to flee. The liberators but have to flee. Just before we leave that speech, to draw a line in the sand, because it is very conflated in popular culture and consciousness, what is from Shakespeare and what is historical fact? Because of, I, I think we talked maybe, I don't know if we mentioned last time, but it too... That's a line from Shakespeare, isn't it? I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 when Caesar is being yeah. killed, and the point that I that I that I was saying earlier, when he sees Brutus as part of it, and he's supposed to have said, "Et, et tu Brute filium meum," you too, Brutus, my son. Yeah, and that's the bit that breaks him. Is that did that really happen? But that bit that's Shakespeare's writing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's not. There are sources that say okay. there are Latin sources that say he said something like that. Yeah. But for the funeral oration, there would have been people writing that shit down, I assume. So that's more reliable. Uh... Yeah, like Mark Antony, he, he's not a lot. He's not actually spoken about a lot uh, in terms of being a great orator. But his was it his father or his, his uncle? His, his grandfather. Grandfather was one of the greatest orators. So he had it in his blood. So he did do a fantastic speech that riled up the crowd and, like Mark said, forced our so-called liberator, liberators who had barricaded themselves in their homes to, to flee east, basically, you know? The actual wording of it, though, which I think is what you're asking, I think that's that's more Shakespeare than, mm. than, than sources, but it's along the lines of what he did, you know? Yeah. So I think it's in the spirit, it's an accurate sp- in spirit, if not words. Um, well, should we, I mean, Mark Anthony, we didn't really mention him at all last episode because we were going through the first triumvirate, so... Who's this fella, or there is was, that an appropriate Well, there was thing one thing I just wanted to say before, Mark, I think just so we have an, um, there was what, just because Mark brought up his will, the will that Mark Anthony ran out, there was, uh, there was something else brought up in that will, which is just important to note, and that was that, so basically at the time, people would have seen Mark Anthony as the natural uh, successor to Caesar. You yeah. know, he was the great soldier, you know, beloved by the by the veteran soldiers. But this reveal this will revealed as well that Caesar had left his fortune and the head of the Julii clan, so his family. He left his name. He left his name to yeah. basically a, a young unknown guy called Octavian, who we'll learn about a lot in the in the coming episodes. Um so this basically would have led to a a split in the faction. So you had three actual contenders for Caesar's legacy, basically. Um, And they would have been Octavian, they would have been Mark Antony, and they would have been a fella called Lepidus. But we've decided, Mark, I think, to... Just say, fuck, 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 fuck Lepidus. Lepidus. He's not important he's enough. Not. He's, he's a general in Caesar's army. That's he's not it. even in the show. So, he is in the show. He is, yeah. He is. But, he's, in, uh, he's in like two scenes, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, but I think the show also carries out this fuck Lepidus uh, thing to the fullest because they just show him as incompetent when they're... I mean, we'll get into this later, but when they're dividing up the land, he, <laughs> Mark Anthony's like... Yeah, you can have this bit. Whatever. And Octavia's like, ha ha. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Like, I, I think his historians 
popular history and academics and TV, movies, everything, everyone just sort of has agreed, just like, fuck Lepidus. And even in the early discussions when we were like, should we do that show Rome? And uh, myself and Mike were like, well, we could talk about the second Rome for it. And we both were just looking at each other going, yeah, fuck Lepidus. We'll just talk about Mark Anthony and Octavian. So, so yeah, he's not too important. But the reason I just wanted to bring that was, was that there was several, so there was, basically Rome was once again dividing into two camps. Uh, Caesarians represented by Octavian, uh, Mark Antony and Lepidus and the Liberators and Brutus and this I suppose is where the coming clash of arms is going to be so I suppose if we can uh, run into Mark about what made Mark Antony such a draw to the, the legions what was the his, his sort of background yeah so uh, Antony is uh, fantastically portrayed in the show by uh, James Purifoy I think he's probably I'd say probably for me he's the he's the, he's the, the the best, the best piece of the show in terms of character acting. He's he's he he's the one you remember. He's the one you really yeah. remember. He has a lot of the best lines and, and things. In fairness, but I think that is because Mark Anthony is one of these, like his reputation in history is, if anything, is actually it's actually less than probably it should be. He's a sensationally interesting character. Mm. Um, Anthony was born in eighty three BC, and he's from a rich but maybe not so powerful family. His father was a. His father had a reputation, and his reputation was that he was a terrible general. He was just he had he had walked his men into some really bad situations. He just he just was a bad leader. Um, Anthony had a connection to Caesar, and that is is Anthony's mother's name was Julia. She was one of Caesar's cousins, um, so he was reasonably distant but related to him enough that Caesar would maybe feel obliged to take Anthony onto his staff. So yeah. that's sort of how he he gets into that. Uh, position, but as a as a young man, uh, Anthony is just a sort of spurious and wasteful youth. Um, he he has a love affair with a, with a man called Curio, and uh, he's known as being a, it's just just a fairly unrepentant gambler, drinker. Uh, you know, just just a sort of a layabout, but a real man about town, as Caesar was in his youth as well, but to a greater degree. One thing that they do have in common is by the time he's twenty one, Mark Anthony has amassed an enormous debt, just enormous in the same way that Caesar had by the same age Anthony owed about in modern terms owed about 5 million dollars by the time he was 21 so you can imagine this sort of lettery and behaviour he was getting up to in his teenage years if he owed that much money at 21 jeez I didn't even have a playstation when I was yeah you know (laughs) exactly yeah so there's a lot of sort of parallels between him and and, and the young Caesar he um, to avoid his debtors he sort of runs off to Greece where he was uh, learning about rhetoric as, as Michael says he actually he actually learned how to speak and how to and that was sort of in his family his grandfather was known as a good orator um, so he was off in Greece and he, he sort of had a bit of a he was a bit of a Phil Helen Anthony he loved Greek culture he loved the Greek myths he loved he loved everything about the East which mm. will become important later um, he eventually was convinced to join the army and he was involved in some of the wars in Syria. Um, and was his, did he, is it, would it be right to say, Mark, that he found his calling in the army? Very much so. So he, he was one of these guys who was uh, just, he was a real man of action, very, very brave. But also, because he wasn't from the ultra end of the senatorial class, he wasn't a patrician as such. Now, his family were senators but they weren't of the old stock the old sort of super noble stock they more had earned their way into that but he knew how to talk to the common man he was a real real soldier a proper fighter wouldn't be afraid to get his hands dirty would eat with the troops would sleep with the troops would fight you know go on horses with the troops you know he was a good cavalry man all of that kind of stuff his reputation in the east then allowed uh, allowed him to be basically appointed as an officer into caesar's expedition into gaul 
So this is how he, he, he gets to know Caesar. Now Caesar is going to promote this guy up to a higher standing because he's the son of his cousin. Um, and he's got a good reputation. And Caesar is a political animal. And he knows that if he, if he has a guy who can rally the common man for him, that's a good thing. You know, so he really, really relies on Anthony's ability to sort of speak at the level that that an uneducated legionary can speak at. Mm. Um, Anthony was a was a was a brilliant man for that. Maybe not a grand strategist, but he's a guy. You yeah, he's a real say. lovable rogue, and you see that in the TV yes. show. Like you can't really take your eyes off him at any time. And you, even though like he was a bit of a dick in some of the TV show that's shown as well, like you. You do kind of root for him in a way. In a way, know, yeah. Like, uh, you think this guy is awful, but he's great. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> long, long, sort of long story short, he's in Gaul for C- with with Caesar in the war. Caesar sends Antony back to Rome before he comes back himself to stand for office. Yes, is he? He's asks him to be like a man of the people. Or yeah, something? the Tribune. He tribune, asks him to stand yeah. for the office of Tribune. Which I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's essentially you're an advocate in uh, in the political system on behalf of the poor. Plebs, you people. could veto legislation that you could you thought went against the the common good of the of the lower classes, basically the po- the yeah. popular. And this is something we see in I think maybe episode one of Rome. Yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. he starts needling Pompey, and on behalf of Caesar, he's he's sort of whipping up the Caesar's propaganda. He's actually speaking directly to the plebs. It gets to the point, as you see in the show, where he's actually attacked in the streets. And he flees north back up to where Caesar's army is encamped north of the Rubicon. And when he comes into the camp, this is all orchestrated, of course, by Caesar. He knows this is going to happen. Anthony comes in covered in blood still. Anthony would know better than to clean himself up. He knows this will look good in front of the legionaries. Yeah. If I come in covered in somebody else's blood, but nevertheless covered in blood, Caesar uses this. And in the show, we have the great scene where he's like, they've attacked the, mil- the tribune of the plebs in the streets. These madmen who declare us to be out. And whose person is supposed to be Well, you're not allowed to touch the tribune. You know, he's not, you're not supposed to go near that elected person. He's supposed to be sacred nearly, yeah. you know, for during his time of office anyway, you know. So Caesar says, these men have declared me an outlaw, and yet they're attacking the tribune of the plebs. Remember, all the soldiers are plebs. They're all, you know, common men. And there's Anthony covered in blood because he knows well enough to not clean himself up. And Caesar has the line in the show. Uh, they've attacked Mark Anthony, your tribune. They've called you an outlaw. You've just spent eight years fighting for them and they've called you an outlaw. And they told me that I have to disband my army and surrender myself to trial. So he's like, I'm going back to Rome. So uh, at this, obviously at the start of season two then as... Um, well, actually, before we get that, I have to ask, um, relationship with Atia? Because that's very central in the show. Did he uh, hook up with someone called Atia? Is that a real person? So, what are we talking about? really, 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 really uh, interesting one with Atia. So the portrayal of Atia in the show is as far as far from truth as you could imagine. She's... Uh, the real Atia is was not first of all called Atia of the Julii because she wasn't of the Julii. She's Atia Balba. Um, she's the niece of Caesar, and she was famous in Rome for being the most pious woman you can imagine. <laughs> so she was um, not at all like Atia in the show. So we can um, add that to the inaccuracy list for this episode. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was when I started watching it. It was the first major inaccuracy. And I was like, "Wow, they're really doing a job on Atia here." Like, because she this whole rivalry she has with Sevilla, which is really central in the show, that didn't happen. She never had an affair with Mark Antony. That's not true. She yeah. is the mother of Octavian. Uh, Octavian. She is the niece of Caesar. But none none of the rest of it is true. Um, Did um, I mean this is 
maybe for next episode really but did her daughter marry mark anthony yes. later yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so i mean yeah that's very central in the show actually has a very central character and it's like amazing how well they portray and and the actress and and the writers and everyone just make her so hateable yeah she's <laughs> such a hateable character yeah. just it fucks it like the first thing she's she does villain. is she's a great villain. it makes makes her uh daughter divorce the man she yep. loves to marry someone else like kills her ex and like all sorts of mad yep. shit she's the worst she she's largely based on on a real person like the, the version of atia they, they, they've sort of they've taken a, a, another person from rome who is known as uh, claudia pulcher and she was this scandalous um uh i don't even know how to describe her scandalous it's just a scandalous woman she was infamous in the streets her family were the claudia clan probably the most most profoundly regarded the family in Roman history. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. probably the most profound family in Roman history. Probably the most important, or one of the most important, anyway. And she's a member of that clan, but she was known uh, for being very, uh, very uh, manipulative and scheming, and would just have her way with whoever she wanted, whenever she wanted, however she wanted. Um, this was the 19th century. We call her a harlot. She, she, no, but today she'd be fairly revered probably like you know what i mean she was just a bit of a badass and that's kind of how they're portraying atia so they've sort of conflated those two characters which i feel like in the show they they've done that to sort of show another side of roman society like how women could operate yeah it makes sense because they also have her uh daughter as a way of showing the more pious side yeah, of things. Exactly. not that she's extremely pious in the show either but like getting that contrast comparatively going. speaking though <laughs> yeah and like you, you it's just something you see a lot in historical fiction where you just combine different characters where yeah you could have this other person you mentioned in the show but just having this person also be the mother of octavian who becomes important later it just makes sense story-wise i don't really begrudge them that so to speak um, but so, Mark Anthony, then, we're back at the death of Caesar. Um, what happens next? You, as you said, they, they sort of make a deal with the assassins that yeah. we're not going to go after each other, but then the funeral yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, so uh, Anthony had sort of, as Michael said, he, a lot of the people would have, would have regarded Anthony as the natural heir. Uh, Anthony had actually fallen out of favor with Caesar and had to earn his favor back because when they took the city and Caesar went off chasing after Pompey's forces he left Antony in control of Rome and he did a spectacularly bad job of running the city because he just didn't give a shit he wasn't an administrator he didn't care the city was in ruins and when Caesar came back he was so incensed he actually exiled Antony back to Gaul he's like get up to Gaul you fucking idiot look what you've done to the city you know right so, leaving your teenage son in charge of the office you work in you know <laughs> probably not a good idea you know so when Caesar goes uh, west to sort of mop up the resistance instead of bringing Antony he brings Octavian. And this is when you start to see the, the rivalry starts to build now because Anthony's suddenly thinking to himself, well, this guy's related to him too, and he's young, and he, he maybe hasn't earned a name, hasn't really done much, and he's sort of a sickly child, Octavian. So Anthony, while not too scared of him, the rivalry starts. But that comes to fever pitch then when the will is read out, and Anthony realises Caesar hasn't left him anything. He's left him money to the family, or sorry, to the to the to the plebs, the people, but also the name and as designated as his heir, his adopted son, Octavian. So we have a deal with the liberators, the quote unquote liberators, who Anthony whips the crowd up and forces them out of the city. And now we have a political deal to keep the Caesarian faction together between Anthony and yeah, Octavian. Yeah, like, I think we should say that they were the the three gentlemen we we mentioned. So basically, Mark, Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus. Uh, they all vied for 
control of the faction, you know, and they all had different uh, advantages in their own way. But eventually they kind of realized that, look, our real enemy is Brutus and the Liberators who are all exiled out east. They're raising legions. We got to come together. We got to kind of unite at least temporarily uh, if we're going to defeat these guys. So what they do is they form a second triumvirate officially to restore the Republic, as all these fuckers <laughs> always, always say. Always the goal. Restore the Republic, yeah. yeah. Exactly, but it was, always, it was more about just to consolidate their own power and then to be able to wreak revenge. But they were, they were rivals. So what they did, and this is sort of a big criticism of them, is after the Liberators had basically been exiled to the East... Which was that the work of Octavian? I think that's portrayed in the show. I'm not sure. Well, it's that. basically they they were at, the easiest way to put this is they were outmaneuvered. Yeah. Mark Antony was the official consul, so he could designate that somebody goes to a certain province and all this, and he used that influence to basically move all his rivals out. They also wanted the likes of Brutus and Cassius. They wanted to get as far away as possible from so, the people. Yeah. So what? They, so the way it was left was. You had one camp represented by Brutus and the Liberators hiding out in Macedonia and Asia Minor. And you had uh, Octavian, Mark Antony and Lepidus in control of the West and Africa, basically. And the, the thing they did, though, which is quite, which they're kind of cursed to this day, is they did this awful thing called the prescriptions. So they brought back... Basically, in order to do the thing that Caesar didn't do, yeah, they needed money to raise legions if they were going to defeat Lepidus or if they were going to defeat Brutus and the Liberators. Yeah, so they basically confiscated land. They uh, prescribed about two thousand three hundred people, they think, and basically that just means I'd put a price on your head. Whoever first gets him, whoever first finds you, gets to keep this amount of money. And they went around assassinating people, robbing their land. All this in the name of basically raising enough money to uh, form the legions. Eventually, they did get enough together, and then they decided to cross over into Macedonia and basically face Brutus and the Liberators, who had uh, raised their own army too, uh, and the climatic, climatic, climatic (laughs) battle is what we call the Battle of Philippi. Um, That battle itself, you're talking... It's estimated a quarter of Rome's uh, eligible citizens were actually fought in that one battle. Yeah, uh, you're talking the the second triumvirate's army had over two hundred thousand people in it. Like, and for that time period, that's incredible to think about it. You know, um, so do you want to talk a little bit about the outcome of that battle, Mark? Yeah, so I I think it's 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 an interesting one because it's sort of there's there's basically two battles in one. Yeah. So uh, the first one is as close in the ancient world as you can get to a draw. <laughs> so both sides sort of face off against each other. Brutus leading one s- section of the forces, Cassius leading the other section of the forces, and then on the uh, the Caesarian side, the, the triumvirate side, you have Antony leading one army and quote unquote Octavian leading the ar- the other side. Well, like, the reason I say quote unquote is because Octavian isn't leading anything. He's not. He's no soldier. It's his his, his hiding pal, in his tent. It's yeah. his pal Agrippa yeah. who who is well portrayed in the show. He's actually the general. Um, and it's it's sort of a bit fifty fifty. It's a bit inconclusive. The first battle, the second battle, um, when they which is two weeks later, um, in more or less the same spot, they clash again. Um, there's some bad weather. Here's what really happens: there's some bad weather, and Cassius 
commanding his army is up on a height, up on a hill, and his forces are actually winning. But he doesn't realise they're winning. And so he doesn't he doesn't order a reinforcement onto the flank that's winning and his his army he's he gets them to fall back. So mm. he doesn't press his advantage and eventually he essentially loses. Cassius does the classic uh the classical Roman move where he kills Suicide. himself. Suicide. Yeah. yeah. And Brutus does he fall on his own sword too, Mark? Is that how he dies? Brutus Brutus's death I loved in the show. The way the way they showed it where he sort of the legions are coming at him and he's on his own. He's pulls his armor off and goes at him with the sword. Is that what really happened? No, he just killed himself as well. He just fell on his own sword. But he, um, he, he's in fairness to him, he did sort of try to fight to the last. Um, but when he realized my army's gone and it sort of melted away. One point to make about the armies, the Caesarian faction has, has the remnants of Caesar's army that he had in Gaul. These are veterans. Veterans. These are the best soldiers Rome got. They ain't losing, they ain't losing the battle. That's, it's just not going to happen. Like, if, if there's any troops that aren't going to run away, these are the guys who aren't going to run away. They're used to these long-haired, face-painted Gauls savagely attacking them. Like, you know, these raw recruits from Greece, they're not going to back down from these guys. So Greeks. The, the Liberators, they lose the battle. Yeah. Um, there is a nice touch that I, when I was reading about this, and it supposedly happened, was that on the battle, when Mark Antony discovered Brutus's body... Like he did have enormous respect for him as an uh, as a adversary, and he actually took off his own cloak and covered his body, um, which I think you know it kind of redeems Aunt, Aunt Mark Antony in my eyes a little bit. It showed he had a bit of honor, you know. Whereas Octavian, when he found Brutus's body, and we'll discuss Octavian in more detail in the next episode, really, because he's a you know he's fairly important. Uh, but he <laughs> he he actually took Brutus's body he and he decapitated it. And he sent his head back to Rome yeah. and he put it at the feet of the statue, you know? And interestingly, that's the opposite of what's in the show because in the show, uh, Mark Anthony is the one who's like, we should send the head to Rome. The yeah. plebs love that shit. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, which is in lo- more in line with the characters as portrayed in the show. But I believe uh, from what I read, Mark Anthony knew, remembered, of course, he was not assassinated when Julius Caesar was assassinated, even though that would have been the sensible thing to yeah, do. Very much so. Um, so I suppose he knew that Brutus acted out of ideological idiocy in his yeah. actions and also did not kill him. So, And yeah. I think I think as well there's an element of... of uh, this is sort of the ruthlessness of Octavian because I think Antony and, uh, Antony and Brutus regarded each, each other as the two major players. Shakespeare even has Brutus's last words are, forget not Zeus, the author of these crimes, Mark Antony. So he regards Anthony as his enemy, not really Octavian. But Octavian is a callous. Du- duplicitous, callous, scheming young man. Like he's, you know, so he's he, hard to like. He is hard, to like. hard so to like. So I, I often wondered, like, his decapitation of Brutus is this him definitively whacking anyone who could possibly be Caesar's heir? You know, he's just like this guy who thinks he's the son of Caesar. I'm not having that. Like, I'm going to just take him out. Yeah. Which we'll see later on. Yeah, of course they came at odds uh, themselves after you know after you cut off one head of the Hydra. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He, and, well, actually that that simile doesn't work at all. But but <laughs> once you've cut off uh, Brutus, well now we we don't have a common any many anymore. So uh, now we're going to go at each other. But we'll leave that for the next episode um, because I think one of the big things from season two um, that we want to get into anyway is Cicero and his portrayal uh, and the assassination of Cicero. 
course, the character assassination of Cicero, not the actual assassination. I believe you have some strong feelings on yes, this. Well, yeah, well, like, Closer I'm, feelings I'm, on Cicero everyone, on the show. Like, you might know me. It takes a lot to piss me off. You know? <laughs> uh, I can be, I, I'm quite mild-mannered most of the time. Um, like, I, I literally wouldn't hurt a fly. But, like, the one thing that really stuck uh, with me watching this series and even thinking back on it is the portrayal of Cicero in this whole TV series. Like, he is portrayed as, I suppose, a sort of uh, an effeminate, weak, sort of conniving, sniveling. sniveling little character who was always running away from a fight. And now, he was by no means a brave military man. Or, you know, he was... By he did okay in the legions, though, when he, when he served. He, he tried, but in fairness to him, he tried to get out as quick as he, he did, can, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, I mean, but, um, like, but his portrayal in this his TV show, it, it is an injustice to his memory, you know. Um, and I suppose he's somewhat... I, I think we'll try and redeem him a little bit here if we can. And Are, are, are you going to suggest, Michael, that this is the thing that absolutely did not happen? So it, it, it did. This is not what Cicero was like at all. Is that where, that's the most no. He the he was a brave man, and he proved it throughout his career. He, the very fact that he was in the position to be in that TV show at all, I, from where he came from, shows shows his value. You know, uh, so I can I suppose. Yeah, what do you want to say to someone like me who's only seen Cicero as portrayed in this show? Yeah, well, forget, forget everything you think you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose we have to go back a little bit uh, to, to talk about Cicero because his heyday was before the uh, the uh, the TV show began, or the, mm. the, the, the scenes that are within that show. He was, in general terms, he would have been a Republican statesman to his core. You know, he believed in the Republic. Like, he wrote tre treatises on the Republic. Like, he was a... Like, just to give a broad overview of him, he was a scholar, he was a writer, and arguably what he's probably most well known for is that he was probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest orator in Western history. Oh, know? he's, he's uh, I would, yeah, he's certainly regarded in the top five. Like he could turn, of all time. He, like if you, if you were losing an argument, Brennan Cicero, because he could basically turn an argument and turn a whole population to a whole different way of lo uh, looking at things and win an argument just by standing up, clearing his throat and going hell, hell for a letter. His, his speeches are still studied to this day. I even, you know? I even had to study them in Latin myself at one point. I would just uh, point out, um, we have mentioned them before in the Hamilton episode. Yeah. Mm. One of his uh, uh, famous, like famous figures, like John Adams, for example, the second president of the U.S., Cicero was his personal oh, is hero. Oh, the, the fat motherfucker? The fat motherfucker, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sit down, John. Uh, that guy. So he's, um, he's, uh, he's studied Cicero's whole life, was completely obsessed with Cicero's uh, oratory and his rhetorical style and his writings, as were most of the American founding fathers. So you know when they say someone's classically educated, that means they've read Cicero. Yeah. And essentially, well, if just give a bit of background about what made him so extraordinary, he was born in about 16 BC, um, in he was a provincial Wait, as well. Sorry, one o six BC. Oh, yeah. yeah, sorry, uh, and he about he, six years before Caesar. <laughs> there you go. And he he was born outside uh, outside of Rome, so he would have been considered a provincial as well. Uh, a bit like Pompey, we were talking about. He was an outsider. He was by no means uh, no more so than yourself, Michael. A provincial. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, surrounded by you, Dubs. Yeah, but he he essentially he he would have been brought up. Um, and was what we would call a novus homo. 
So he was a, a new man. He didn't have any network behind him that would have given him a boost into public life in Rome. All he had, now he was a rich, his parent, his, his family were rich. They were, uh, but they didn't have the name. They didn't have the name. Have the name yeah. And it was extremely difficult in the Republic in Rome to break through, essentially. I think the modern concept of that is, they, you know, when you hear someone refer to as new money. Yeah. yeah. That's what Cicero is, right? There you go. But the the thing he did possess, so although he didn't have the name, like his name means chickpea. That'll give you an idea of what it, where it came from. He he he, he was incredibly gifted, you know. Um, he was also extremely cunning, ambitious. Uh, like he could bring you to tears by looking into your eyes and 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 winning an argument. He believed that nothing could be that that no nothing could. He has a quote actually. Nothing could not be put right by the right words. Now, whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But it just shows you the, the value he placed on oratory anyway. Um, so similar to a uh, Breaking Bad quote where Walter White says something like, there, there has to be some combination of words that can make what I've done okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a great show. I need to watch that again, you know. Um, but essentially in his, in his youth... He uh, he loved. He knew from the very beginning, from a child, that he wanted to be a a, a liar, an orator. You know, he so he had trained from his a very young age to be so. He uh, was sent to Greece uh, to the island of Rhodes, where he learned from a famous orator at the time uh, called Molan how to basically learn to to speak correctly. You know, Enunciate, yeah, project uh, your voice, all of that kind of stuff. Exactly, and it's so much so that when he, Mullen finished teaching Cicero his course, whatever it was, semester, I don't know, um, Mullen actually weeped, and he was like, and, and Cicero said, why are you crying? And he said, now even oratory, now even in oratory, uh, Greece has been surpassed by, by Rome, you yeah. know? Uh, so essentially, he, he, he was a once-in-a-generational character. He kind of came to fame because... He, when he got to Rome eventually in his early 20s, he started to basically um, go after corrupt governors. So this made him really, really popular. With who? With the people or not with the corrupt governors, I assume? Oh, it made him very unpopular with the Senate because they were all getting kickbacks. But basically, it, it, the main case that made him famous was a, was a really, really like, and when I say corrupt, like this is Lehman Brothers corrupt. Like this is... <laughs> shocking the collapse level. of Enron like. yeah this is shocking levels of corruption he he, he this there was a governor of Cis, uh, Sicily who he, he basically found out how corrupt he was persecuted him and made this guy actually flee the city of Rome before he even gave his final address and Cicero being Cicero because he wasn't a modest man published the speech he would have made <laughs> you know afterwards nice yeah <laughs> But all this to say, anyway, he, he eventually ro- rose to the top of Roman politics in 63 BC. Um, 63 BC, he, essentially, he became consul. And what made him unique was he was voted unanimously by all the centuries. So mm. the rich and the poor voted for this guy to be consul. And it was never done before and it was never done after. So basically, everything about him was unprecedented. He was... Uh, so he was an extremely brave man and extremely, uh, he, he wasn't a weakling as he was, per, as, as he was portrayed in the film, you know? Um, so eventually anyway, 
one of the main things he did was he he crushed a, a famous conspiracy whilst he was consul in 64 BC. Um, uh, is this the same conspiracy that's referenced also in the Hamilton uh, episode where yeah. we talk about Catiline? Yes, the Catiline conspiracy. Yeah. What uh, if you, I know we were sort of coming up on the end of the episode, but I am uh, I've wanted to hear a bit about that for ages. <laughs> so what's yeah? So Catiline would have been the opposite of Cicero so he would have been a, a basically a, a patrician to his core so a, a member of the senatorial class to his core the old uh, money yeah and he was really annoyed that Cicero bet him to the top job okay and so what he did was he basically tried to inv- create a conspiracy to overthrow the state yeah but he wasn't very clever or he definitely wasn't as clever as Cicero because Cicero was always way ahead of him now there's arguments that Cicero actually wrote this account of what happened so whether you can believe it or not because he wasn't above a bit of plagiarism at all um is another thing but he eventually outsmarted Catiline. he managed to in his own words save the republic very very humbly yeah. <laughs> and for this honor he was named basically pater patri so which is the highest one of the highest honors Ro- rome could give to you which is father of your nation you know oh, well, yeah. so he was a big deal Pretty this guy yeah um, now, eventually, just to finish up on him, he eventually pissed off too many people because he was so clever and he was so witty that he was always kind of just when you thought he was finished in politics, he'd pop up and he'd say a clever line and whip up like <laughs> whip up a, a kind of a, a small like whip up a faction against uh, anyone from Cicero or sorry, anyone from Caesar to Pompey. So eventually they pissed him off so much that they maneuvered to exile him and they got rid of him. And he was sent into exile for about five years. Now, when he came, we know he was in exile because he complained about it for, for five years. Yeah, I think, it's impor- I think it's important to note that we, we have his personal letters. Yeah. That they've survived letters that he used to write to his famous friend Atticus. And a lot of what we lo- know about the gossip in the city comes from these letters. Yeah. So Cicero will be talking about the young Caesar. You know when he refers to yeah. the youth as the mustachioed young man in the city and all this yeah. kind of stuff when he's talking back and, and he forth. was a gossip. So, you yeah, know, and his, wor- like his works still to this day are so well known for be- because of that because they're actually enjoyable to read, you know. Um, now, when he... Basically, his heyday was over at that stage. But he... What 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 happened to him when he, he was eventually recalled from exile? Caesar said, "Okay, this is when Caesar was still alive." Uh, Caesar said, "Okay, you can come back, but just shut up, all right? <laughs> just don't don't be bothering me. I'm up here in Gaul trying to conquer these barbarians. This is, this is your last chance. You can yeah. come back, but if you open your mouth again, you're dead." Exactly. Uh, now, because of this, so he was in the political wilderness for a few years. But one of, and I suppose I'll finish on this: the the this was actually a good thing. Because instead of him conniving in politics and, you know, pissing people off, he actually sat down and he wrote probably the most prolific series of writings in in, in Roman history, yeah. you know? he ch- So what he's, one of the reasons he's so well known now is he translated all the Greek philosophies into Roman. Then he wrote treatises and books basically on everything from like debt to friendship. Here's how a republic the- should be run. Yeah. Here's how debt should be structured. Here's what you should do with this. Here's what you should do with that. Oh, Which are, way, are, are very, very good. You can even read them now, yeah, like, if, yeah. you're, if you're into that type of thing. So that's sort of his lasting benefit today. But as well, as he said, like, he was a, a, a defender of the Republic till he died. And he ultimately suffered for that defense of the Republic. He, he once said, I defended the Republic in my youth. I will not abandon her in my old age. And this eventually 
getting back to where we just were with the second triumvirate and Mark Antony and Octavian, they knew that Cicero was back in Rome and they were like, okay, stick this guy on the prescription list. We can't have him we messing have around. Him, yeah. And it eventually led to his uh, assassination. Um, finishing on his assassination, Mark Antony's wife, who hated Cicero because of his speeches against Mark Antony and this type of thing. Uh, and because of the things that he wrote about the scandals that yeah, she got up to herself. <laughs> exactly. Arranged for his hand to be cut off and his tongue and brought back to Rome and they were nailed in the forum and she stuck pins through his tongue, you know, to, to basically pierce his tongue out of anger at the power of his voice. So all of this, anyway, I know I went into a lot on Cicero there. He's a, I'm a bit of a fan. Uh, but this guy didn't deserve the reputation or he didn't deserve the portrayal he got in the in this TV show and that's definitely my biggest gripe with it. You might see, Jacob, why uh, I refer to Michael sometimes as Cicero. Yeah, that's been, that's uh, exactly <laughs> now, but having known you both for a couple of years, this is finally revealed the, the, the core of your adoration for this man and why <laughs> you're you yourself are some is sometimes uh, referred to as oh well no Cicero. Jesus I no Cicero I'm a, I'm a bogger from leash but uh, <laughs> Mark keeps calling me it so it seems it seems to have stuck <laughs> indeed well so this pretty much wraps up what we're discussing here in episode three we're sort of halfway through uh, season two we're gonna do the final we promise final episode on Rome uh, next time where we're going into how did a spotty uh, 19-year-old outwits this uh, genius Cicero and pretty much everyone else to uh, basically dominate the Roman world uh, and decide the entire fate of the so-called Republic from then on, right? Correct. The fate of the Western world, you might say. You might. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we're getting into next time. But for now, thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we very much appreciate those. You can find all our other shows at showswhatyouknow.com. But that's pretty much it. We'll see you next time. Bye. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.